Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder intersects with the story of our lives. A ministry of Calvary Mac. Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Welcome back, ladies, to the Story Night Podcast, where we actually have another throwback episode for you. If you've been listening a while, you know this is a place where real women share real stories of real hope. And part of being real with each other is accepting imperfections and letting go of control. And as your very type A host, my original plan was to space out our special throwback episodes. Uh, But long story short, that is not the case. So bear with me. (laughs) Just two weeks ago on episode 11, we had our first special throwback episode with Leslie Miller. And tonight we have another special throwback episode. If you listened to episode one, you actually heard me and Bonnie discussing this particular story night event. This is one of the most captivating and fascinating story nights I've ever heard. And I'm so excited to share it with you. After hearing Judy's story from the live event back in 2011, we will get to hear from her now and catch up on the past nine years of her life. But before we begin, I just wanted to explain a few details that may help you as you listen. Judy was presenting on stage with a slideshow, so you'll hear her referencing both the photos and her clicker. You'll also hear her reference the Civil War, and she's referring to the Civil War in El Salvador. Lastly, you'll hear her talk about moving to a place called Isla Vista and then mention several other places after that. All of those are located in and around Santa Barbara, where this event was recorded. So with that, let's listen in to Judy in 2011. I'm on, right? Wow. (sighs) Scary to hear yourself. (laughs) Good evening. My husband asked me to do this to introduce myself with my formal maiden name. And most of you know me as Judy, but that's my middle name. My first name is Marta. (laughs) So my official name is Marta Judith Romero Amaya, Canahuati Pimentel, Rivera Las Rodriguez Caray, de (laughs) Sholti. I'm going to start by giving you a little background and um, then a little bit of my childhood. That's my grandmother, my paternal grandmother. She married a man from Saudi Arabia, a merchant, and moved there to find out that there was three other wives (laughs) waiting for her. So she was already pregnant and save her allowance, paid the man to take her back to the boat and back to Central America. And she had my father. She never remarried. She only had one child. And she passed away when my father was 17. That's my father. And uh, <laughs> he, um, he grew up to be a banker and a politician and a musician. And he was a very religious man. He loved God, and he passed away about a year and a half ago of Alzheimer's, and he forgot who my mother was, and he forgot who I was, but he prayed to Jesus until the day he died. He was always, he woke up with a prayer and went to bed with a prayer, and throughout the day, you know, when he was in pain, he prayed. My 
mother came from a... See, I was supposed to click more. That's our pictures of my dad. That was one Christmas he came here. He loved the violin. And church. He was in church all the time. And that's the two of them. My mother came from a more conventional background. She, her father, this is my grandpa, was a doctor, and her mother was a um, homemaker. And they had six children, ages from 2 to 12, when my, mo- my grandmother fell ill with cancer. My mother was 10, and she used to hear my grandmother cry and in pain, so she would go out in the patio and kneel down and pray. And um, sometimes she would fall asleep out in the patio, you know, praying. And my, mother, my grandmother passed away shortly after. And my mother decided that there was no God. So I grew up in a, in a household with an unbelieving mother and a very religious father. There were seven girls in my family. Six of them were very compliant. And then there was me. <laughs> I was a very hyper and curious child. Um, at the age of five, I took the back panel of the TV to see how the um, cartoons got in there. <laughs> and uh, I took apart the sewing machine. And I saw the blender twirl, you know, and it, I was curious about it. And I thought, what would happen if you put hair in there? So I had a really long ponytail. I turned it on, and I put it on. You know what happened. (laughs) I pulled the plug, and my mother said, get the scissors. And my father said, get the hammer. And I'm going, huh? (laughs) My dad wanted to break the glass so he can save as much of my hair as he could. And my mom wanted to save the blender. (laughs) I... I used to watch, love to watch movies. I still do. And I saw cowboys jumping from one horse to the next, you know, and we, my grandfather had horses. So I wanted to try. And I tried that. And I fell. <laughs> I also rode a bull, you know, my, to prove to my cousins that I was man enough to uh, go hunting with them. I climbed the fence, jumped on the bull, grabbed onto the horns, wrapped my legs around the neck, and off I went, you know. <laughs> then my aunt saw me, and she had a heart attack. <laughs> so instead of going hunting, I was grounded. <laughs> I always thought that I was my dad's favorite. And then when I was thinking about all the things that I did, you know, I, I put a hole in my head. I put a hole in my brother's forehead. I split my sister's knee, 17 stitches. Not, none of it on purpose. You know, I told my sister, run, because I need to practice how to lasso. <laughs> and grab her ankles, and down she went. <laughs> Not my fault. <laughs> so I thought it was my dad's favorite, because he took me everywhere he went. He just didn't trust me. Didn't want to leave me alone. (laughs) By the time I was 15, the Civil War began. And it was a difficult time. My father was a politician. And uh, President Molina and President Romero both would come to visit us sometimes before the war started. And it was really exciting to 
see the helicopter land in a nearby field. Um, by Salvadorian standards, you know, we were wealthy, quote-unquote. But by American standards, we were just a middle-class family. You know, we were considered wealthy because we had a car and a TV. <laughs> uh, my father survived many attempts to his life. One time, um, his car died down just a couple kilometers outside the town. And uh, all the rebels were at our house waiting for him to kill him. And the townspeople saw him walking. He grabbed his briefcase and started walking home. And they saw him, and they stopped him. And they said, wait, you can't go. They're waiting for you. They're going to kill you. And he said, where? My house. Your house. And... Of course, what would you do if you think the rebels are at your house? And my dad started running towards our house, and the townspeople stopped him, and they had to tie him up and gag him because he wanted to come home. So they kept him there all night. The rebels were there all night waiting for him. And at sunup, they left, and they released my dad. He came home. Nothing happened. They didn't do anything to us or my mom. And here's the funny thing. So he hired a mechanic to... Check the car the next day. The mechanic got there, and guess what happened? Started right away. Another time, my sister and I went to his bank to get some spending money. And my dad said, have you had lunch? And my sister and I said, um, no, but just give us the money. <laughs> we want to go. <laughs> and he, uh, he said, no, no, I'm going to get you something really good to eat. So he left, and he was gone Three minutes, five minutes stops when we heard the commotion, you know, and people screaming. And so we came out, and the rebels were there with guns and everything, and they were looking for him. And my sister, see, I forgot to click again. Um, that was my mom. Check out that truck. <laughs> and that's my mom. And that's me. <laughs> Don't I look like a little angel? <laughs> and that's me again. We spent a lot of time at the beach. I was a troublemaker. But I wanted to show you. This is my school. I went to an all-girl Catholic school. And, of course, my first communion. I grew up Catholic. And that's our family. And that's in El Salvador. Rivers, water was all around my family. The beach. That's actually John with Billy. And that's all my sisters. And the ranch. And, okay, this is where... I wanted to get to my... No, I didn't finish the bank story, did I? <laughs> so, so they recognized my sister, who at the time was Miss El Salvador, and they said, hey, this is his daughter. Let's take her. She'll be bait. And I said, no. And they looked at me and they said, oh, they look alike. They must be sisters. Well, let's take her too. So they took us and two of our friends... You know, and because the police, they could hear sirens, so they wanted to get out of there. Um, they took us to a warehouse. And that very same day, they took us about noon. And by 6, we were out, completely unharmed. It was just, it, and it's unheard of, because kids get kidnapped all the time in El Salvador. And all, all over Latin America, actually. And 99% of the time, you don't get them back alive. You know, they kill them, or sometimes they even burn them alive, and it's, it's very sad. 
So the next, shortly after that, our town, this is a painting that um, a friend of mine did from memory. There's no pictures of my town. Um, when it was completely flattened by the um, United States Air Force at the request of the Salvadorian government. Um, and my mom didn't want to leave. And everybody was saying, you got to go. You, and people thought, they announced it three days in a row. The cars, the radio, the TV, you know, there was car, police cars driving around saying, in three days, there's going to be nothing here. Leave or you're going to die. And people thought, oh, they're just saying that because the rebels, we lived in this pretty valley with lots of fruit trees and a river running through it. And they had made their base there. So they, they said, they're just trying to scare the rebels. They're not going to do it. You know, they're not going to destroy a town. So a lot of people didn't leave. And at the last minute, we left. And the town was completely flattened. There was not a standing brick. And a lot of the townspeople died. Two days after it happened, my father gathered a small army of men and equipment to go down and clean up the town and um, burn the, body, the bodies, you know. And uh, what they found was this girl that lived down the street. Um, she was eight months pregnant. And apparently the um, blast of the bombs had split her stomach. But the baby was alive. My dad took the baby. He was a little girl. Um, he took her to a hospital and then delivered the baby to a, a family, to the surviving relatives. Um, her name is Miracle. In Spanish, Milagro. <clears throat> because many politicians had lost their families, had their family murders and children kidnapped, my parents wanted to get us out of the country. So they send us all out as change students. Uh, my having her children scatter all over the place, you know, and not being able to care for them or protect them brought my mom to her knees and back to God. You know, that's when she turned to God and started praying. The one lesson that we all got from the war and um, from all the bad things that were happening in El Salvador at the time, was that you have to count your blessings. A few days after, you know, my dad was sitting on the curb, you know, with her elbows on his knees and her, his hands just looking at the sky, and I thought, wow, he's really sad, you know. I mean, he's in his mid-60s, and Everything that he had worked for all his life is gone. I mean, the bank, the house, there was nothing left. And so I came and sat next to him, and I said, it's hard to lose everything. And he leaned back and smiled and, looked and said to me, you think I'm mourning my stuff? He says, I'm thanking God for protecting my family. That's what's important. And he kind of put his arm around me and giggle, you know. Uh, and I thought... Wow, stuff doesn't matter, you know. It's still there and you're dead. So God was really good to us. Nobody in our family was harmed. He really protected us and delivered us from the war. So I left my country as an exchange student. 
I was 17 going on seven. <laughs> I, I had grown up under the protection of my dad and then all the nuns in the Catholic school. And I came here and I thought, wow, girls have so much freedom. <laughs> they can wear blue jeans and tennis shoes and go into the men's department store. <laughs> so we weren't allowed. <laughs> so so I, um, I arrived in Oregon in January and it was winter. So there was, uh, we, went to a, we went to a store to get hats and scarves and there was a bargain table full of all this stuff. And I thought, neat. So I started trying on the gloves. And then I found this peculiar thing, you know. Like, what is that? I know. It's a nose warmer. <laughs> so, so as I'm putting, trying to put it on my face, you know, and the straps didn't quite fit. And Debbie, the lady that I was living with, the mom of the family I was living with, came running. She goes, No! No! And she grabbed it from me. She goes, this is a jock strap. <laughs> Which didn't mean anything to me. Okay. <laughs> so I stayed with Butch and Debbie for almost a year. And then my dad called and said, can't come back. You know, you can't come home because I beg him, I want to come home. I want to be with you. And, and he said, can't do it. Things are worse than before. And I couldn't imagine how that could be, but that's what he said. So he said, you need to move to San Jose to uh, your cousin's house. It was a distant cousin that I had met a couple of times. So I moved to San Jose with Melody and... Uh, by now, I'm, I was approaching 19, still going on 7. I was standing at a bus stop when this shiny red car stopped, and this, this handsome man, you know, and says, Hey, babe, you want to ride? And I thought, Oh, how sweet. <laughs> he called me baby. <laughs> so I jumped in the car. And uh, off we went, you know, and I lived about 15 minutes away from the bus stop. Um, and he kept driving and driving, and I'm using all the phrases I knew. What's your name? You like bananas? <laughs> <laughs> and we drove for about an hour. And I thought, wow. And then we're heading out of town. And I said, are you lost? And he goes, yeah, babe, I'm lost. <laughs> so then... I said, well, you are so nice. What is your name? Give me your name. You know, and he wouldn't tell me his name. He says, now, why do you want to know my name? And I said, I want to know your name. And he said, what's your address again? I said, 318 Grey Avenue. So he made a U-turn, and within 20 to 30 minutes, he had me home. So stopped in front of the house, and I said, oh, can I give you a thank you hug? And he said, nah. Get out of here before I change my mind. <laughs> and as I'm walking away, he's like, don't ever, ever get in a car with a stranger. <laughs> and I'm like, but it worked out great. <laughs> so I was pretty homesick, you know. A couple of years had gone by and I wanted to get home. And then I lost contact with my parents. My dad had to go in hiding with my mom. And I called my uncle, and 
well, the person I call my uncle, it was my dad's best friend. And he said, you know, he's not, uh, he, he's gone. And I said, where is he? And he says, I don't know. You know, and he was kind of talking in code. He was saying things that didn't make sense. So it kind of led me to believe that it's either somebody's there or his phone is bugged and, you know, somebody's listening. He doesn't want to say. He just wants to be safe. But I felt pretty safe with my cousin, and, uh, and I was happy to have them as a family until um, the husband started making advances to me. And it got really uncomfortable. And I said, if you don't stop, I'm going to tell my cousin. So when she got home, he told her that I was making advances to him and that I went into, bed, into his bedroom. And so she threw me out. So I was on the street. No one to call and $35 in my pocket. I went to school that morning. I was going to a community college. And I went to school not knowing what I was going to do. And God sent me Barbie. Barbie sat next to me in my English class. And she kept looking over. I must have had a face like, oh, what am I going to (laughs) do? She kept looking over. And then when class was over, she said, are you all right? And I said, um, I don't have a place to sleep tonight. You know, and I kind of got choked up. And she said, you wait right here. I'm going to be right back. So she ran to a phone booth and called her dad and came back and said, my dad said you can stay with us for as long as you want. So you're coming home with me. So she took me home, and um, it was wonderful. They loved me and gave me a safe place to stay. I stayed with them for almost a year. But still, I wasn't, you know, I I kept in touch with my uncle, and um, he would tell me, you know, don't worry. Do not worry about your parents. Because I kept saying, is my dad dead? He said, not that I know of. You know, so don't worry. So I met a boy. I finally decided to date. And when did you know it? He was a cheater. <laughs> so he broke my heart. And I decided to go to Arizona and sell magazines door to door. It was spring. It was cold, and it was rainy, but I sold a lot of magazines. (laughs) Didn't make any money. So I finally got tired of that and called Barbie. And she said, I said, I can't come back to San Jose because Randy's there. And she said, I know. Call Lilla. And Lilla lived in Isla Vista. So I took a Greyhound bus and moved in with Lilla and began to uh, go to school at City College. And guess who I met there? <laughs> God sent me John. So John, um, John and I took surveying class together. And after class, I came out, and I was walking by, and, and he said, Hey, Judy, want to go out and catch a movie or something? And I turned around, and I said, Sure. And he goes, Oh, yeah, well, I understand. Wait, did you say Yes. <laughs> And I said, yes. (laughs) So we went out, and he asked me to marry him that very same night. (laughs) And I said, yeah, sure. (laughs) 
I did not realize what a huge blessing he was. He truly was a gift from God. And his family became my family. And his dad would perform duty duty. (laughs) Because he would get up in the middle of the night and pick me up at work. I went to school from 8 to 3 and worked from 4 to midnight. And I didn't have a car. So he picked me up at work in Goleta and drive me. By now, I lived in the Mesa. Drive me to the Mesa and then go back home to San Roque. So he truly became my dad. Then the fairy tale began. Joe and I got married. We, went to San, uh, we got married at San Roque Church and went to school, finished school, graduated as electrical engineers, bought a house, had a baby, isn't that wonderful? <laughs> and make her, my career took off. See, and I forgot to do the clicking. <laughs> There's my sister in the background. And that's Barbie. And that's John and I. You didn't recognize me. I was skinny. <laughs> and that's our wedding. We were pretty happy. <laughs> That's John's family. They're a kick. (laughs) I love being pregnant. You could eat all you want and say, I'm eating for two. (laughs) And that's our firstborn, Brian. So this is where my career, I began making tanks for the Australian Army. And I got to travel all over Australia. (laughs) The problem was that I began to travel more than I was home. You know, and from the outside, it looked like I was having a great time. Just traveling around and meeting all kinds of people. But the truth is, I started to drift away from God and away from John. You know, I thought I was in control and I didn't need God anymore. So by the time we had been married 10 years, our marriage was in trouble. And I felt all alone again. You know, all those wars and killings and kidnappings and everything else, that was outside of me. This war was going on inside of me. You know, the darkness was in my heart, not outside. And that was completely different. So I went, um, Brian Brian was five, and I moved out to an apartment. And I turned my back to God, but he wouldn't leave me alone. He kept coming after me. And I'm so thankful for that. He sent plenty of angels. You know, I got emails saying, this is not what you need to do, this is, you need to go back home. And I got magazines, and I got people knocking at my door saying marriage is sacred to God and the troubled children of divorce. And, and I kept saying, go away, go away. And then a friend of mine actually grabbed me by the shoulders and said, really, you're going to get a divorce? An adulterer, is that what you want to be for the rest of your life? And that was a turning point for me. So I decided, out of obedience to God, I went back home. And obedience paid off because John is the perfect man for me. 
And every day when I wake up next to him, I thank God for bringing me back home. Brian is my firstborn. Let's see. That's Billy, actually. (laughs) Billy and Rocky. That's Brian and Billy. Brian is my firstborn and, and my sunshine. But he had his hard times during his teens. You know, he, um, he was walking the line, and he could have fallen on the good side or on the bad side. And we prayed for him. Our prayer was that every time he got off the straight path, that he would get caught. And God listened. <laughs> the kid couldn't speed. You know, he couldn't go 70 miles an hour because he would get a ticket. <laughs> so he said, would you stop praying? <laughs> he, God spare him spiritually and physically. He totaled his first car and he totaled his dad's motorcycle. He had a really bad motorcycle accident. And uh, both times the policeman said, he should be dead. You know, you're very lucky. He's very lucky. But he has grown into a very responsible young man. He worked two jobs last summer. And he's working hard in school. And he's a sweet boy. I mean, you can see with his little brother, he was just, you know, he was this little doll. Still is. (laughs) Cowboy Billy. (laughs) My pride and joy. So this is back home. That's John with the boys. So Billy is our miracle boy. An abortion was highly recommended when I was pregnant with Billy. I was 37, and uh, they did the testing, and they said he's either going to be born dead or with horrible disabilities. So I said, I can't can't do that. And this whole time, you know, I never came back to God. I mean, I, I obeyed him when I came home, but I wasn't reading scripture or going to church. And this is when I met people, Helen Daniel and Bobby Konitskini and uh, Dan Walker, who nurtured me back to Christianity. I was pregnant with Billy, and they said, let's pray. Let's pray for him. So we joined a home group. We we came to church once, and then we went to a retreat. And we met wonderful people who pray for Billy. And Billy was born perfect. So I finally came home to God once again. And, you know, all this ickiness that was going on inside me, all the darkness and the selfishness, it kind of washed away. I used to look at people that tried to evangelize, you know, and I go, why are they doing that? They're so pushy. (laughs) And now I understand because when you have God, there's this peace and this joy and this love, this warmth that is nowhere else. You know, and now I understand because you want people that you care about to get there, to feel that. Two more blessings. Women. Aside from my mother, um, I had a really bad experience with women growing up. And 
I was always with my dad and my male cousins, so my comfort zone was man. You know, the friendship, I seeked friendship, friendship from men. And uh, I prayed that God would bring women into my life. And look at this! <laughs> I met so many wonderful people. You know, it's my neighbors and people that I work with that have become just wonderful friends and my girlfriends that are always there for me. It's just, and the church, you know, the home groups. I wish I could tell you everything that I have learned. Every person has contributed to the person that I am and, and they have given me a vision of where I want to be, you know, in a godly way. So no matter what your struggles are, God is always there. The latest blessing that God has given me is my lack of health. Because God knew that if I was healthy, I would be doing so much stuff and pay him little attention. So now I'm, I'm not healthy. And I was uh, diagnosed with lupus. And I have, it's a roller coaster, you know. But when I have my downs, it really brings me closer to God. You know, I feel the need for him. And I'm laying in my bed, and and if I put music, he speaks to me. So no matter what your struggles are, he will be there to deliver you. Seek God. Seek his wisdom and his guidance. Look for counsel in his word, in his music, and in his people. I want to leave you with my favorite verse. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. It's Jeremiah 29, 11. That always stay with me. Trust the plans that God has for you. He's got great plans for each one of us. But we have to follow him and we have to follow his word. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to that story just as much as I have for many, many times. I just, every time I hear it, hear something new, get something new, I'm amazed all over again. And as promised, I've got Judy with us now to give us a little update on the past nine years since she shared her story. So welcome, Judy, to the podcast. Um, I was hoping you could say hello to everybody and tell us a little bit about how you're doing now. Thank you, Jessica. Um, Hello, everybody. I want to start with the lessons that sharing my story left me with. Um, The best part of sharing my story was that it made me stop and look back and see how God's hand was in every facet of my life. He he plays such a big part in my life. And, and it was great to stop and open that box that I had locked up and put away and relive those moments, those difficult moments, and see how he always rescued me. Since I share my story, of course, when I share my story, life was wonderful and easy sailing. And I thought all the storms were behind me and it'd be sunny from here forward. 
Well, not so. <laughs> I have I have a couple of boys. When one of them had graduated from high school, he started studying engineering at City College, and he graduated with honors in 2013. We were very proud, and life was peachy. He transferred to UCSB, and in the fall, he began his battle against addiction, unbeknown to us. By 2015, 18 months into his um, engineering studies, he was in a very dark, deep hole that could have easily taken his life. Um, when he spoke to us, we had no idea this was happening. It was right under our nose because he lived with us. But he was gone a lot and came home late and left early. And we thought that was his demanding studies. When he spoke to us about his problem, he had already found help and had signed up for rehab. And this was a big shock to both of us um, because we don't even drink, neither my husband and I. And we just never thought that this would happen to us. He would go missing, sometimes for one night, sometimes for several days. And we were calling people and looking in hospitals and jail to see if we can find them. Finally, he checked himself into rehab, but we could not talk or visit him for three months minimum, which turned into six months. His doctor would report to us. And that was a very difficult, dark time because we thought he may not ever come out of that hole. That same year, in April of that same year, my cousin, who was my best friend since childhood, died suddenly of a massive stroke while training for a marathon. And yet in that same year, our other son was expelled from high school because of a video he published. And as you can imagine, you know, a senior in high school and trying to play this social media game and, and his hobby was editing videos and putting out a video that was completely misinterpreted, just knocked him out. It, it, it really hurt him and traumatized him because being expelled from high school and cut off from all his social events and his friends was too much for him to handle at 17. So he fell into a deep depression. So I was dealing with my grief, grieving my cousin and possibly grieving our son because we didn't know whether he was going to make it through this, this time. And with a very depressed teenager on my hands. That was to me the perfect storm. And in the midst of that, a sudden peace came over me. It was as if God himself had reached out and held me in his arms. And it reminded me that he saved me, from, not only from the Civil War, but from being here alone as a teenager. <laughs> and oddly enough, that same year, a song called In the Eye of the Storm came out. And I just took it as a message from God that in the middle of the storm, he remains in control. He is always in control. So basically, I had 30 years of sunny days and then a perfect storm. But throughout all this, through every storm, every thing that happened, there was always people that approached me and asked me how I was 
dealing with all of this? And I said, my faith. And so there, there was, there's many parents that are looking into my faith because of what happened. And our son is now, he's doing well, by the way. He, he went back to school. He had a couple of rough years. And he went back to school and got his degree. But he's now a speaker to many meetings and rehab centers. And he speaks of God's faithfulness. You know, that even when he was deep in the dark, there was this little light that guided him. And he thanked us for his faith. He said he met a lot of people while he was in rehab that had a difficult time believing in God and they couldn't get past that. And you need that. They find that people with faith have a 90% success rate of overcoming their addiction. So he, he is very involved now in helping other young people that have the same problem and um, sharing his faith as my husband and I are with other parents that are in the same boat. Because when you're told your, your child is dealing with addiction, you don't know where to go or what to do. You, you're completely, especially if you never had that problem. So he's very involved in resources, helping the community create resources for parents and young people. And so are we. And in the midst of all that, we always bring God to the forefront because he is the rock that kept us afloat and kept us firm and with hope to whatever the outcome may be, because we, you know, they said it's a 50-50. He could die from it or he could come out of it a better person. So it, it was uh, difficult to think of him as being gone, taken by God. And yet at the same time, we were resigned that if this was the will of God, he will get us through this. I am very thankful for the storms. They're a constant reminder that God is in control and he will carry us through the storms. It's also a reminder that while we're going through the storms, other people are watching and it's an opportunity to share our faith with others. And that's all I have. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you say that's all, after just listening to your whole life story, <laughs> I don't know if that's a phrase I would ever use for you. <laughs> and, you know, you've said so many things that are just so spot on and, and so true and so moving. One of the things that has struck me, especially now going back and listening again and again to your story, is the joy that exudes out of your voice. And you're talking about things that are horrendous sometimes with you know, and as an audio, we can't see you, but you can just picture you with this glowing face and this smiling voice. And it, it almost seems surreal. How, like, how can you talk about some of these things that are so dark with so much joy in your voice? Yeah, it's the light of God. Truly, truly. Because, you know, sometimes my husband would say, I can't go to sleep. What if he's already dead? You know? What if, if we have to wake up to, he's gone. And I said, you know, you have to, tr there's nothing we can do. You just have to trust God. 
you have to put it at the feet of Jesus. Because really, what are you going to do? Go all over the city looking for, you don't even know. Sometimes he, we hear bits and pieces, you know, he won't allow us to attend his seminars or his talks because he said, a, a mother shouldn't hear that, you know? So he, he must have gone through a lot that he can share with people that he doesn't want us to hear, you know? And, and, but we did hear that sometimes they just lock themselves up in motel rooms, you know, a group of them and they all pitch in and pay and they do their thing, you know, it just, so there's no way you can go out and look for them and find them. You know, the song, I Surrender All, immediately came to mind. And I just thought how hard that is for so many, so many parents and family members to accept that they don't know the whole story. Yeah. But know that God knows the whole story. Yeah. And, and you know, it's really interesting because when you go to church and you see all these lovely families, you think that they're all perfect except yours, you know, and having a child with addiction is kind of a dark secret. And one man stood up, you know, when we first started going through this, he stood up and he said, and he's, he's one of the pillars of our church. And he said, our son is not with us because he's in rehab. You know, he has a cocaine problem and he may not come out of it, but we're doing everything. So we ask for your prayers. And I thought, that's what we need to do. We need to share this. You know, we need to say, look, this is what our family's going through, you know, so that we can connect and share because this, having a support group that prays with you is so important. You know, our church has Bible studies that meet at someone's home. And we often say, what happens in home group stays in home group. <laughs> And so we share difficult things, you know, like our home group pray for two years straight with us about our son, you know, and he, he said he felt God's presence and he still feels it. You know, he goes to meetings and prayers every single night. I love what you touched on about having that small group, having that support group to pray with you and for you especially when it's about somebody other than yourself. Yes. It's a very delicate balance. On the one hand, you're protecting the privacy of someone else's story. Yeah. But at the same time, when you're so connected to that person, it's it's your story also. Yeah. And you want that prayer for them. And when you can find that group that it's not a gossip group, it's a we love you, we're here for you. You can show us every skeleton in the closet we're not we're not judging we've all got them and and we're here to support each other and we're here to pray for each other yeah so normally at the end of a podcast there's sort of been one or maybe two main themes or chapters that have been talked about and i can ask the speaker to to give some words of hope or encouragement or advice to listeners who really relate and as i was thinking back through your story though I, I don't even know where to begin. I mean, there's 17 chapters and they're all totally different. 
<laughs> at face value, I should say, at face value, they seem completely different for me to say, well, can you give some words of hope and encouragement about, you know, living through a civil war and then moving to another country and being a foreigner and, um, you know, going through a hard time in a marriage, going through a hard time as a parent, like I could just list off chapter after chapter. Yeah. But was there a thread that you saw through all of it? You know, it's funny when I shared the story with Bonnie and I said, I don't know where to hang my hat. <laughs> and she said, I think it's a story of rescue. You know, God continues to rescue you through every trial. And, and I see that even with my son, it's his story that we as parents felt the pain, you know, and God rescued us. He rescued us from hopelessness and sleeplessness, you know, it just, there was always hope. Even if, you know, we, we talked about, my husband said, we can either a year from now, we can either be going to a graduation at UCSB or we can be going to a funeral. And I said, yes, and they're both on God's hands. You know, either way he takes us, he will carry us through. And I, you know, I always, I love Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. you know, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord you know, plans to prosper you and give you a future. And I, I hang on to that because even in a dark, dark time, around the corner may be the brightest day of your life. So, you know, you just have to think past the darkness. You just have to keep your hope up and faith in the Lord that He He's your father and, and you are His child and He won't abandon you. Oh, I know how many women listening are just connecting with that word rescue and feeling a desperate need to be rescued. Bonnie and I had talked about one of the lines in your original story night, comparing the darkness of the war going on around you in El Salvador compared to the darkness of a war that can happen inside mm -hmm. you later on. And in both scenarios, we're desperately needing to be rescued. We need a rescuer. We need our we need a savior and a hero. And so for all the women out there who are looking for that rescue, I was hoping you would pray for them. Absolutely. Heavenly Father, you know the darkness that surrounds us and the darkness in our hearts, Lord. This world is a broken world and you are our light. I pray that you shine that light, that you allow those women to keep their eyes open, looking for that light in the midst of the darkness, Lord. I pray that you surround them with angels like you did with us, Lord, that they listen to people that speak your words, that they look for signs that you're there, a song of worship, a verse in the Bible, the words of a brother or sister, Lord. Please bless all the women that are listening and maintain their hope. Listen to their prayers and send angels their way. And I pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Judy. Thank you, Jessica. It's been a joy to actually, you know, speak with you uh, before we started re recording. I had you know, mentioned that I feel like I know you so well. <laughs> but 
<laughs> but we had not actually officially um, met until this Zoom call. So I'm just so grateful that you took the time to do this. And you come across as somebody that everyone would want to know. Oh, you hear your voice you. and you hear your story. I want to be her friend. Like, <laughs> I want to <laughs> hang out with her. <laughs> and I, so I imagine we're going to have many listeners that feel the same way. <laughs> Well, if anyone wants to reach out to me, please give them my email. You're amazing. Happy to connect. I love it. Thank you. You are just just phenomenal. Is there anything else that you wanted that we didn't get to touch on before we sign off tonight? Oh, no. Just God is faithful. Yeah. You know, this, he, in the midst of this broken world and the darkness, he always shines through. We just have to be looking, <laughs> looking right. for those glimpses of light and words. And I find music, you know, worship songs help me a great deal. They do. And I tell you, you know, there, there is so much darkness going on right now, but I, I do see rays of hope through it. And it is our prayer that all of our listeners, if you are feeling just kind of overwhelmed by all that's going on in the world, that you're able to see some of those rays, those light rays of hope yes. coming through. And I hope that this story encouraged you. I hope that it blessed you. I hope that it touched you. And we are just, Judy, we are very grateful to you for opening up your, your life to us and letting us in. Thank you. It has been a blessing, Jessica. It, it's, it's, you know, we never take the time to stop and look back and look for God's hand. And it's, it's just amazing when you see that. Your faith increases and your perspective changes. It has been a blessing to me. Yeah, I love it. And I and if you've been listening to the podcast for more than just this episode, you've probably heard me say at one point or another, I highly encourage you to write out your life story. Yeah. It doesn't mean you have to submit it to the podcast, but just for your own reflection and, and for your family to be able to read your story. It's it's a pretty powerful and special thing. Yeah, it is. Well, thank, thank you, you Jessica. <laughs> and to all who are listening, thank you so much for tuning in to this special throwback episode tonight. And we hope you will join us next week for our next story. Good night, y'all. The Story Night Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Mac. For more women's stories, visit calvarymac.com slash women. Oh,